This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juvita Gupta and this is The Pulse. We know social distancing creates unique challenges for people with disabilities. But let's turn to possible solutions. COVID-19 is the first major pandemic to take place in the age of social media. There are risks of spreading misinformation, but perhaps more interestingly, online platforms have opened up a world of possibilities. Many of these grassroots initiatives are spontaneous. They are designed by and for people with disabilities. You can find ways to get groceries to people who need them or provide emotional support. The possibilities are endless. While it doesn't beat a hug or a pat on the back, technology can bring us closer as we remain hashtag together apart. Today we discuss online community building during COVID-19. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Chuita Gupta. And as always, we are working from home, me, Andrika, our producer, and Sam, to bring you this program remotely. That is, in fact, our new normal. If you hear some construction in the background for part of this program, my apologies in advance, but I hope you will be able to get the most out of the experience, and hopefully the construction won't be as much of an issue moving forward. The hashtag Together Apart is in fact trending on Twitter as well as on Instagram, and it's really speaking to this idea that although we have to be physically distant, we don't have to be socially distant. And of course, people are finding creative ways to keep in touch with one another. Virtual cocktail parties, viewing parties, dance parties, and even a birthday party for a very lucky 10-year-old. After all, you don't turn 10 every day. But let's be honest, all jokes aside, as much as we have these feel-good stories making the rounds, online communication and online communities can be a lifeline for people with disabilities. It can be critical. And we've got two guests today, both of whom you've heard from before, and each of them shares a perspective on the value of an online community. In the second half of the program, you'll hear from Livia Mendelssohn, who is the Director of Accessibility and Inclusion at the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center in Toronto. You'll find out from Livia what they're doing to make their programs available online and inclusive of people of all abilities. But first, we hear from Constanza Faria. You might remember Constanza from a previous episode of The Pulse when she joined us to talk about an art exhibit she had been a part of. But today, she is going to talk to us about access to services, goods, and resources for people with disabilities during COVID-19. She'll speak to us about Caremongering TO, tell us what that is and how she's involved with them, as well as the startup that she helped to found, which is called WeLink. Constanza, welcome back to The Pulse. How are you? Thank you for having me again. I'm okay. Has has good, has one can be given the circumstances. 
Absolutely. And the circumstances you're talking about uh, would, of course, be COVID-19 and the fact that so many of us are self-isolating and we're social distancing. Many of us are staying home. And so in lead up to that conversation, I want to talk to you about the startup that you're involved with. You were the creator of something called WeLink. What is WeLink? Mm -hmm. So WeLink is a, a tool, I would say, to connect people. So it provides a way, facilitates um, connection through a very simple algorithm so that users can both provide support and um, request support in a more intuitive uh, way, I suppose. Um, that's what WeLink does. And I want to be very clear about this. WeLink was your good idea long before we even thought about COVID-19. So tell me why you felt we needed something like WeLink. Well, um, as you know, I guess I've been a part of the, uh, I'm a person with a disability, first of all. So I think that uh, from personal experience, um, I knew what it was like to be, frankly, very disconnected at certain points in my life um, due to my disability. And I suppose when you learn them things in school and, and you go to university and you learn these big fancy terms like social capital and, and you know, theories about intersecting all of these kind of ideas, it, then it hits you that, you know, there's a name for this and researchers study it, but you live it. You know, you mm-hmm. experience that every single day of your life and it has this big fancy name and you learn about, you know, big concepts like, the social determinants of health. And I think what really impacted me as a first year student was learning that if you combine, you know, risk factors like smoking and obesity, you combine all of those big factors that we hear about, social capital tops them all off, you know? Mm-hmm. So you could do everything right in your life. And if you were not connected, and again, through no fault of your own, it's just the way that society uh, is set up. Um, the way that we see now, I think now it's become, again, evident to everybody that we had this setup that set us up to to fail and to have a crisis like this one. Um, like people are saying, you know, the virus is one thing, but capitalism and everything else is a real pandemic. So um, that's where I was coming from. And um, I was fortunate enough to pitch this idea to a team of um, third-year uh, software engineering students earlier this year. Um, so I guess the crisis in a way was happening, but just not, it wasn't here yet. And they worked on this project the entire semester. So we have a pretty solid platform now that we can kind of tweak a little bit and um, scale it up quite a lot and get this out there, hopefully uh, in the next, in the upcoming weeks. This is very exciting. Now, just before we get into talking about next steps, I just want to talk about that term that you mentioned, social capital, which was coined by Robert Putnam, who is a sociologist, Mm -hmm. and he talked about the Mm -hmm. social connections that we all have. And I just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of that very (laughs) academic concept. So you're really trying to create social capital within the disability community with Wheeling. Let's say that in a few weeks you've rolled it out. What would happen if I logged on? So what would happen is you would have the opportunity to, first of all, uh, set your settings. So, for example, right now, if you are self-isolating at home, one of the categories is to offer uh, phone call support. So if that's something that you're isolating at home, you can set your settings so that it doesn't require, like, it's something that you can do. You choose what what category of support you're going to offer. And we narrowed it down to three categories. So, you know, Iran's 
pretty straightforward, you know, picking up something for someone, dropping it off, or like a quick connect, again, now, given the circumstances, um, over the phone, and that's a very big thing right now as well, uh, making sure that people are getting, you know, connected, they're staying connected in other ways. Um, and so you said your settings, you said your availability, and you said your location. And with that, that goes into your settings. And when you want to be active in the system, meaning, you know, you may be matched with someone, you can just turn that on and, and you're, you're, you're on. You'll get a notification when, when you are a good match for someone. Um, and on the other hand, you can also use the app to submit a request, you know, and, um, and it kind of breaks it down again by location, when do you need this done by, and again, what are you looking to do? So are you looking to have groceries um, delivered to you? Are you looking, again, to connect with someone? Are you looking maybe to learn something? A lot of people are taking this time to kind of get their minds off of something and either pick up a new skill or teach something. So that's something that you can request as well. Um, and, yeah, you put the request through and you'll be matched with people. It'll generate a kind of list. And you can go from there. The app will have a function where once both people are matched, they can start chatting in the app itself. And after that, that's, that's where people will take it from there, make those arrangements or connect. So I've been on Facebook quite a lot. And one of the things I've yes. noticed is the care mongering TO Facebook group. And it's basically a lot of chats yes. amongst people it who is. are doing, it sounds like a lot of the same things, you know, offering information, yes. offering to run errands. Have you been in exactly. touch with them at all? I have, yeah. So originally, uh, so I still remember because it was Friday the 13th, so I can't forget. <laughs> Friday the 13th, uh, the group had just formed or had recently formed. And I think they had about 2,000 members. And I realized that I actually knew some of these um, organizers from the group from way back. Um, we, we did some work in Toronto around municipal policies and politics and stuff like that. And I brought it up to the group and I said, look, I have this, you know, I told the same story. I have this kind of platform. Of course, it would need some um, kind of scaling. So I need, I need a bigger team now. I need like an emergency team, which is what I formed, this coalition of professionals and community members to get this off the ground. Would there be an interest for this? And unanimously, everyone was like, yes, please. And so I got in contact with the admins and, um, and we've been collaborating ever since. Um, had the days went by actually that very weekend, I formed this team and they saw their membership go up to uh, 5,000 and then 10,000 and now it's like 22,000 people. So, um, you know, they, Facebook's algorithm is not set up, like you said, to facilitate anything, to facilitate offers, mm -hmm. to facilitate requests, um, to facilitate kind of the location-based things. None of that or availability taken into consideration. So, the backlog is quite intense at the moment, and it's only getting, you know, more intense as the, the days go by. Um, so, you know, that's how it's being managed right now with the group, kind of these hashtags that kind of divide um, the discussions or resources or offers or support. Um, but, yeah, that's the situation with the group. It's definitely... Um, you know, the scale of, of this crisis means that the group grew exponentially in a very, very mm -hmm. short period of time. So it's definitely a lot of weight on the admins. Um, and so they're also looking forward to kind of having a tool where, um, where at least the most basic interactions can be done off of, the, off of Facebook. Mm -hmm. Not entirely, really, because again... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But yeah. WeLink would fill that need in in that Facebook group as well, just to kind of speed things along a little bit. Um, sure. I, 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 yeah, I hesitate to talk about a silver lining in this crisis, but mm-hmm. I do think about whether this is going to make all of us, when the dust is settled from COVID-19, think a little more realistically about interdependence um, and the yeah. ways in which communities lean in to support each other and whether that might become a feature of life moving forward. I agree. And I that's definitely my hope. I know it's hard to talk about that, like you said, I, I, I hear that sentiment and I feel that too. There's just, there's so much fear and sorrow and grief happening right now that it's, it's hard to envision what things will be like, but I think it's, it's also hard not to talk about some of the gaps that we had in society. And I know, you know, again, being part of the disability justice community, it's hard to say, you know, I told you so, mm-hmm. um, because we did know this. We experienced it. We lived it. Um, and it just took a more tragic turn for everybody. Um, and we're just kind of trying to organize and rally around that. And it's it's really no surprise that it's these communities that are um, grouping together to provide these very essential services now, as opposed to having, for example, a big governmental organization taking over, which could be another route, but that's not that's not what we're seeing. Um, is one of the reasons you know. we're seeing a grassroots development of these support and care right. services because exactly. people with disabilities, like many of the marginalized groups, are, shall I say, used to working with uh, limited resources or working mm-hmm. around barriers? Is it our life experience as people with disabilities <laughs> that puts us in such a unique place to take some leadership in this I moment? So. I really do think so. I really do. I think, again, even looking at the pods, um, kind of idea, the system of mapping out your support. This was also, again, developed way before this crisis. So I think it does put you in a position where, you know, we're not starting from scratch, you know. Um, and like you said, we're used to organizing without official, quote unquote, kind of support. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a it's, it's a unique role that 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 is being played out right now. And while everyone else is scrambling, we kind of have some of these parts um, figured out. Well, Costanza, I said this before and I'll say it again. I always feel rich when it comes to social capital every time I talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And um, I look forward to perhaps coming on again when when we've overcome this, um, this big crisis that we're in right now together. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That was Constancia Faria, a Toronto-based disability activist who talked about her startup WeLink as well as her role within Caremongering TO. An important facet of this conversation is the role of allies and the many community agencies that play a vital role in supporting the disability community. One such community agency that we're quite familiar with is the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Centre in Toronto. I'm speaking now to Livia Mendelssohn, the Director for Accessibility and Inclusion at the JCC in Toronto. Livia, welcome to The Pulse. It's great to be back with you, Joita. How are you doing? Not as well as can be expected. What about you? I uh, Same over here. I'm uh, hunkered down at home and working busily from home. It's true. You know, your hungering down is, is a good choice of word there. I want to talk about 
how you're keeping busy working from home and some of the programming that you've managed to transfer online at the JCC, the Jewish Community Center. But just in a few words to set up our conversation, could you let us know about the mission of the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center? So uh, the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center is a um, fitness and recreation and community center in downtown Toronto. And our mission is to be a welcoming hub uh, for uh, everyone to access uh, fitness, wellness, arts and culture, um, and to uh, share their interests with their neighbors and community. So you have this fairly broad mission, and you know Mm COVID-19 swept across the country. So at what point did you realize that it would not be feasible to keep the physical space open and you needed to move things online? What were your considerations? Well, even uh, before the public health directives were issued, a a few weeks before, we had started convening a pandemic response team, um, knowing what was happening around the world, and we were meeting steadily We actually decided to make the call to close our doors on the 15th, even before the public health directive was given, because we have a lot of vulnerable folks who come to our building. We have a lot of seniors. We have a lot of people with disabilities and health conditions. So we really wanted to make sure that we were uh, maintaining a safe environment and keeping everyone healthy. So we did close our doors on the 15th. And uh, at the same time, we immediately went into action, uh, figuring out how we can help our community stay connected, stay active, um, and really help with some of the, the real stress that's um, going on for people during this, this time of distancing. I'm going to come back to some of that, Livia, but... As you make the transition to putting programming online, let's be fair, it's not something that happens overnight. So what were some of the things you were thinking about as you made the transition to online programming? Yeah, our our considerations were um, around, first of all, what what do we know that people will need right away? Um, And then, you know, technologically speaking, what um, are our staff able to do? at home, because uh, our staff, of course, are, are all home as well. Uh, what kind of training would they need to learn platforms like Zoom, uh, to get things moving on Facebook and Instagram and uh, videos, all of those platforms? Uh, but really, we were thinking, you know, what will uh, do people need in the immediate next few days? What will they need in the next week, couple of weeks? Uh, so some of the programs we wanted to get up right away were uh, around our most vulnerable groups uh, and uh, and the groups who have let us know that they have uh, felt isolated over time and who we've really been um, creating programming for. So certainly uh, people with disabilities, especially people with developmental and intellectual disabilities, uh, our seniors, and uh, a lot of the programming for our seniors has been not even online, but via phone calls. Uh, Our seniors team uh, have been making individual phone calls to seniors who have been isolated and afraid, sharing information, sharing resources, and really just trying to um, help people through that personal connection. I think it's really meaningful to stay in touch, to keep those relationships alive. We've we've been doing matchmaking between people who meet at the center and would like to uh, get each other's information so they can stay in touch. And for um, our youth with disabilities, they're, a lot of them are very technologically savvy already, so it's been a really easy transition to get. Uh, we now have five uh, programs online for them, 
And for everyone, we have, you know, uh, arts and culture programs. We have story time with one of our members who's an author. We have yoga and Pilates and um, all sorts of fitness and mindfulness and wellness exercises going online. And some of our support groups have a parent and caregiver support group that's gone online. We have uh, a group for women who are recovering from abusive relationships that's gone online. So we're really trying to get things going as quickly as we can to keep the support coming and to really uh, keep our community connected. Livia, I had a chance a few days ago to sit down with the executive director of Inclusion BC, Kelly Vershore. And Kelly made an excellent point because they work with individuals with developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And Kelly said to me, you know, I'm so worried because it feels like people with intellectual disabilities are being forgotten in the public discussion mm-hmm. about COVID-19. And the big thing there is that there's so little in plain language to assist with even passing on essential public health information. So how did you make sure that your website and your platforms were making use of plain language? Absolutely. So our goal is always to have plain language on our website, and that's one of our design goals uh, and communication goals in general. But at this time, we've also been sending out through our, our listserv for families who are connected to us some great plain language resources, some social stories and pictorials that actually have been created by people with disabilities for people with disabilities. So we're sharing all the community resources we, we can get. Uh, we're sharing some great resources from CAMH, from the Azrieli Center there. Uh, the Miles Nadal GCC has partnered with them for, for some time now. Um, and they focus on people with developmental and intellectual disabilities and mental health. So we've had some great program sharing around stress relief, mindfulness, So we're really trying to keep families informed. We're sending out information every day, uh, mostly via email, uh, but also via phone call. And uh, we're really going back to kind of the roots of of community support and community engagement, which is, you know, community organizing uh, one by one and circulating information about uh, disability and civil rights at this time uh, through Arch Disability Law Center. I know there's a lot of concern about uh, what happens when people uh, with disabilities when we get sick and what you know how our our lives are valued. So we've also been circulating lots of information uh, from them and um, just trying to do um, through one of our our social groups, which is now an online current events chat for youth with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. We're doing a lot of questions and answers. Uh, We're um, putting together a session with a doctor who will join us on Zoom to speak to them uh, even more, Uh, but really trying to encourage to keep the questions coming and provide as much information as we can. It really sounds like you've got, you're firing on all cylinders, but I just want to go back to the fitness programs. I really Mm -hmm. love to exercise and I used to like to go to the gym, but that option isn't available at the moment. So I was really happy to hear that some of your programs have moved online. Is, uh, do you know if some of your programming, your fitness programming specifically has description built into it so that people who are blind or partially sighted can access them as well? We are working on that. Uh, the first week we were just in uh, reaching out to our fitness instructors to get things online as quickly as possible. And so the format 
um, that they were using was Instagram, which is not as accessible. Uh, we are pivoting to have things on Instagram, on Facebook, and also to have um, the videos available afterwards. And we are working to incorporate description uh, so that it's easier um, for everyone to, to participate. Um, certainly, our mindfulness programs are uh, almost all descriptive to begin with, so they don't need much. They're already kind of universally designed. Uh, but we are looking at our yoga programs. Uh, we're looking at our cardio, all, all of those pieces to try to make sure, you know, if we're going to produce it, we want to do our best to make sure it's available to everyone. So it is, uh, it is uh, definitely a learning curve for our staff to figure out how to produce things from home. And, of course, not everybody is used to the technology. So um, it, it's not instant, but we are working hard to get everything we can out to the community. Well, my cores, my biceps and my triceps and my quads, all thank you for your initiative. Uh, <laughs> Livia, you said something really amazing before. You said this is uh, showing us the power of community organizing one by one. And, you know, people are saying maybe we should, we're better off using the term physical distancing rather than social distancing. Talk to me about the value yeah. of community at a time like this. Absolutely. You know, um, we've started using the, the motto, um, internally and now um, sort of as a hashtag beyond the building and that's that's really it's not just about being physically together our relationships are strong our communities are strong and um, we can do a lot to support each other um, without being physically in the same place so I think we're really learning that the bedrock of, of community is relationship and uh, we can be in different places but through the magic of technology, we can still have those connections be as strong as ever and in many cases stronger. Um, you know, I know with some of my colleagues that I I don't see as often because we work in different areas, we're seeing each other on calls every single day. And same thing with, you know, our, um, our participants, our volunteers, uh, we're all being called to use our skills in different ways and to dig deep and um, find our strength to share what we can offer and and to make sure that the most vulnerable among us are supported and not just supported but are um, at the heart of sharing what their needs are because you know as always we don't want to be doing programming for we want to be doing programming with our communities so we've been uh, we've opened up the email to say tell us what you need we can't promise we can do everything, but we are going to try to do our best, and we need to know what you need. Well, Livia, it sounds like you are really keeping the lines of communication open, and I thank you for taking some time to communicate with us about all you have going on at the Jewish Community Center, virtually, of course. Thanks a lot for being on The Pulse. It was a pleasure having you. Always great to talk to you. Thanks so much. That was Livia Mendelssohn, the Director for Accessibility and Inclusion at the Miles Nadal Jewish Community Center in Toronto. If you'd like to catch any of that conversation with Livia or my previous conversation with Constanza, please head on over to your favorite podcast platform and download the podcast for this program. You can check out past episodes as well. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. I want to say that... When we consider that the, the concept of community, it is a critical lifeline for people with disabilities. And for all the criticism, most of which is valid, 
for social media, it has nevertheless thrown the disability community a much-needed lifeline. But we really need to think critically here. It's not just all good news all the time. We still have a persistent digital divide. We have to think about equal access to technology within the blind and partially sighted community specifically and the disability community generally. And maybe if you really want to be critical in your thinking, we need to start to ask ourselves whether internet, which has proven to be so important at this time, needs to be considered an essential utility in the way that we consider hydro or water an essential utility. I want to think about these stories critically and move away from thinking about these stories as simply feel-good stories. Of course, if you feel positive or uplifted, that's great. But I hope you'll head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse, where I have a couple of other thoughts about why we need to do more than consider these to be feel-good stories. I want to thank Constanza Faria and Livia Mendelssohn, our guests today on the program. The Pulse is produced by Andrika Delanroll. Sam Robinson is our technical producer. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio, with special thanks to Paula Deneen, supervisor of AMI-audio Technical, who makes the program possible. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. Wherever you are, I hope you stay well. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.